So a little bit of a preface. Proverbs is a unique book of the Bible. It has uh, a, n- a number of different passages. Uh, the way that it, it sort of is framed is that chapters 1 through 8, 9, essentially are there are these longer passages. And then at the end of Proverbs, um, you'll see there's these longer passages. But in the middle, they're just a bunch of verses that speak on a lot of different issues and topics. And so moving forward, for about the next couple of months, we're going to be looking at Proverbs thematically, not necessarily looking at a paragraph and then you know, sort of speaking on that particular paragraph. So just get ready for that. Because of that, we're not going to have different people reading scripture. And it's not because they were doing a bad job or they, you know, we don't want them to do it. In fact, I love when other voices come and read scripture. But it's really because of the way that Proverbs is framed. So this week and next week, we're going to be looking at pride from Proverbs, the, the concept of pride. And I know many of you know that today is the Super Bowl. And so I'm not going to talk about football, but I am going to talk about basketball as a little bit of an illustration. Whether you like them or not, the the LA Lakers during the Kobe Shaq era was one of the most dominant NBA teams ever. And again, some of you are hissing and booing in your heart and the very few of you are rejoicing. But uh, behind their success was really those two players, Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal. And they were Hall of Fame essentially once-in-a-generation talents. But despite their overwhelming success and their, their drive to be the best in the NBA history pursuit, it really came to a screeching halt. What was the cause of that halt? It wasn't injuries. It wasn't because of age. It wasn't because of regression to the mean of talent. It was actually pride. In the summer of 2004, Shaq was traded to Miami. And in reflecting back on that summer, Shaq said this. He said, I could have won eight, nine championships with that man, that man, me and Kobe Bryant, instead of us both arguing about whose team it is. When it's all said and done, you don't want to be saying to yourself, I wish I could have. And he said that not that long after Kobe Bryant died. So here's the thing about the the challenge of coming together is that when pride gets in the way, everything comes to a stop because both of them wanted to be the man. And at the cost of their success, being the man was the most important thing for them ultimately. And that's, it's not just a problem for the LA Lakers. It's a problem for every team, every business, every leadership group, Every marriage, every relationship, every friendship, everyone wants to be the man or the woman. They want to be the one in charge. They want to be the one whom everyone looks to and says, you're the reason why we exist. You're the reason why we are successful. You're the reason why we have made it this far. This is the essence of pride. And today we'll look at the problems of pride, and then next week, the destruction or the end of pride. So first, 
two problems. The first problem of pride is spiritual blindness. Blindness. Proverbs describes it this way in chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And then chapter 16, verse 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Pride is blinding. It is so filling of yourself that you can't see outside of yourself. In Kobe and Shaq's case, the media, coaches, friends, all telling them, you're both good. Just stick it out and you will be the best ever. But when you're filled with pride, it doesn't matter what anyone says. You'll do whatever you think is right. You'll refuse to admit you're wrong. And this is why Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15 describes the proud person. Look at the word that it uses because Proverbs interchanges proud and fool so often that the proud person is ultimately the fool. And in Proverbs, a foolish person is someone who says there is no God. And so therefore they determine themselves to be God. And on top of that, because they're a God, everyone else has to submit to them because they're always right. They can't see the potential possibility that maybe, just maybe, they're wrong. That's why the proud person in scripture is a fool. They always believe there's no God, they are God. And the fool has to control their own life. It's always right in his own eyes. And they cannot see that the road to success is going to be when they actually surrender themselves. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So we have to understand this. We are inclined to believe we are wise in our own eyes, 12, 15. And then chapter 16, verse two talks about our motives are always pure, so we're always right. And I, I do think that that's one way in which pride blinds is that we actually think sometimes our, our motives are pure. I have good intentions. I'm sincere. I, I'm not trying to do any harm. But Proverbs is saying every proud person always thinks their motives are pure. Their intentions are good. The cult leader, David Koresh, he, you know, in Waco, Texas, he ended up killing all through his actions, having all these people killed. But if you were to probably ask him, he would say, I have good intentions. I mean, even Hitler believed his intentions were good. We say they're evil. But when you're so proud and full of yourself, you'll always say your intentions are good. So never think that just because you think you have right motives, good intentions, are sincere, therefore, you're doing things for the best of, of everyone and for the sake of everyone. The proud person always thinks they have the best intentions. Recognize that the proud person, according to 1412, says, we always believe we're right. We, we seem as though it's right. A few questions to ask then in light of this. Do you ever think that you could be wrong, especially when you fully believe you're right? That takes a lot to be willing to posit the possibility that you could be wrong. 
And you're not, not just saying it. So let's say a husband and wife, they're in a conflict. And you know how that goes is when you're in the middle of a conflict, your instinct tells you there is no way I'm wrong. And also, you tend to also have the look at yourself in the best light. When the other person says, you're raising your voice, you say, I'm not raising my voice. Or you actually say it with calmness. I'm not raising my voice. But you actually raised your voice. You actually just don't know it. Okay, I, that was me. I've, I've had that happen to me many times in my conflicts where Sue will say to me, you're raising your voice. And I'll say, I know I'm not raising my voice. But when she says that, I intentionally lower my voice to make sure that I'm not raising my voice, but I don't remember what I sounded like. I don't have a re recording of it. That's what happens with the blindness of pride is that you just can't imagine you being wrong. And it's the problem of this, uh, this heart is that I, I don't want to believe that I could be wrong. Because if you really think I could be wrong, that's the opening that is needed for you to slowly see God working in your heart. But in the midst of it all, wow, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to yield. It's hard to give an inch because you're always thinking, well, if I give an inch, they're going to take a mile. Well, that's pride talking again. Do we allow people into our life to tell us things that we can improve about ourselves? And are you quick to hide your weaknesses because you don't want to appear weak? How often we hear the tragic story of a friend, someone you know, and their marriage suddenly has just come right up to divorce. Suddenly you hear they're getting divorced and you think to yourself, I never even knew they were having marital problems. That just wasn't the, how does it get to that? How does a marriage go from everything looks great, the Christmas cards look beautiful, Facebook, everything is wonderful, and suddenly there's divorce on the horizon because there's an unwillingness to actually say, wow, we, we are really struggling. We need mediation. We need counsel. We're open to it. We're open to people even seeing the dark side of our lives. You know, it's those people who actually are open to others seeing that. It's the beginning point of reconciliation and healing. It's the start. Because one thing is for sure, Satan, he wants it all covered up. He wants all the mess hidden. Because the more you hide the mess, the more you don't really deal with the core issues of your heart. But when you're willing to open your heart, even to even look like a fool in front of others, God does the work of not only bringing about humility, but reconciliation, restoration, healing. This goes against everything that we believe internally as a person because I, by sinful nature, by instinct, I'm all about protecting myself because I'm my own God. I believe what is right and I believe what is wrong and that's what's reality to me. Until though we are ready to reveal even our weaknesses and share our need for others, for prayer, for counsel, for wisdom, only then will we experience God's grace and healing. Are you regularly trying to think of ways to 
boost others' opinions of you by noting your accomplishments, your children's accomplishments, coming up with subtle ways to boast of yourself. It's, a, it's, a, it's such a secret part of the way that we operate. All of us, to some extent, we want to look good in front of others because we don't want to look like a failure. We don't want to look like failing parents, failing marriage, failing at work. So we come up with different ways to perhaps boost ourselves, even subtly, the humble brag, you might say. This is what pride is like, and it runs so deep. I heard a story of a man who was told by his wife how angry he was. And when he examined himself, he was shocked because he saw himself as a calm, even-keeled, mild-mannered, tempered person. So what he decided to do was to ask different people around him whether they saw the same thing. So he went to his secretary and he said, my wife said that I'm an angry person. Do you agree with her? And the answer that she said was, you actually are really angry. And then he asked a friend, same thing. He was stunned because he could not see it. And the question that confounded him was, why did no one ever tell him? You know what the answer was? Everyone was scared because he would get angry. <laughs> see how it's a cycle? Like the, the proud person is unwilling to hear that they are struggling with anger. And so no one ever says it. And the way that we describe it in our family is, there's like a, they are the, they're the sun. And everyone in their family operates as a planet. And they're all circling and orbiting around the sun. And so when you operate that way, you're deathly afraid of how they're gonna respond afraid of their anger, afraid of their moodiness. When you walk into your house, does everyone sort of change their demeanor? When the garage door starts opening and because your kids hear the garage door slowly creaking open, do they suddenly start, have a little jerk in them, a little twitch? Uh-oh, dad's home. And there's a fear. Or mom has come in and, oh no, She's woken up on the wrong side of the bed today. We have to be really quiet. Moodiness, we call it, we like to call it moody, but that's actually called pride. And the, the worst part of it is that no one knows about, like everyone knows about it except for you. And no one ever wants to mention it because if they do, your instinct is defensiveness, anger, irritability, and denial. And then you become more entrenched in it. This is the terrible danger of pride. We are so consumed by ourselves that we deceive ourselves into believing what we want to believe is true, not what is true. That everyone else is mean-spirited, you're the kind person. Everyone else has a problem with judgmentalism and criticism, but you're actually merciful. Everyone else is an ignoramus, and you're intelligent. Everyone else is irrational, and you're reasonable. Everyone else has an anger problem, and you just, 
are totally fine. Everyone else raises their voice. You're the calm person. What's the road of this person? Proverbs 14, 12. It's death. Death is the end result of the proud person. What is death? Death is the final separation, ultimately, between God and us. But we experience death even in our day today because if you experience any type of separation, there's in some sense a death, death of friendship and relationship, death of peace in your life, death of joy. So there's a separation of joy, of peace. And this is a terrible scourge to our souls. This past week, I was having a conversation with George Sneeman, and he was sharing with me how when you are old, it is so hard to... Um, to not be a grumpy old person. You know, why is it that our society, when we think of old, we hear words like cynical, cantankerous, cranky, you know, grumpy. Why does, it, why does that come to play? Because there are, when you're old, when you're older, in your 60s, 70s, towards the twilight of your years, if you've lived your whole life in a life of pride, it is incredibly difficult to change. You know, there's a reason why in the Bible, it is a true rarity to see an old person go from someone who is incredibly proud to suddenly someone who is humble and gracious. You know, it doesn't happen. Yes, there are godly old people in the Bible, but it's because they were godly or turned to Christ in their younger years and their in their mid-years or in their teen years, wherever it might be. But think about that for a moment. Why is it that there are so few people in the Bible where they're old and they turn to the Lord and they humble themselves? Because, and this is what something that George told me is, they've, they have such deep roots of pride. Where do those deep roots start from? It doesn't start when you're 16, 70. It starts when you're young. It starts when you are always right and everyone around you is wrong. And if you continue living that way, then it's incredibly difficult to break those roots. If you go to the redwoods, go to Muir Woods or something, and you take a look at the big, tall redwoods, they're only able to get that tall because their root systems actually go so deep and so long and so wide, right? When you are full of yourself, the reason why it's so hard to break is there's decades sometimes of absolute blindness and pride to your heart. And this is something that George told me that just, it sort of shocked me. It was, he said, I have rarely seen an old person um, surrender their pride. It just doesn't happen. And he was saying, it, it's not that God can't change that person. It's that God rarely decides to change that person. It's almost as if God is saying, you know what? You've lived your whole life in rebellion against me. I'm going to let you continue on even to the end of your days, even as Proverbs 14, 12 says, even to your death, to your ultimate separation from me. That should strike a chord into all of us. That means most of you are here, you're at a critical place of a juncture of which direction you're gonna go, a world where you are the God of your life 
or where you surrender your heart to the Lord. A world where you say, I'm always right, I know I'm right, or a world where you say, I could be wrong. You know, when you go into a conflict or a conversation, to be able to say, I, there's a reasonability, I believe, to what I'm saying. I've worked at it, but I know I'm not perfect. I know I could be wrong too. So let's work this out together. It takes a humility to do that, an openness. And if people are scared to tell you what they believe, what they think, then my friend, you are full of pride. And it's, it's a dangerous place to be. Uh, right afterwards, you're gonna have, some of you are gonna go to the gospel train meeting. And I, I wanted to give you this example because I think it's a good example is that there's one area that we have the most pride in. You know where it is? Your children. You can say anything about me, but don't ever say anything bad about my children. That's our instinct. It's, uh, it's, it just speaks to something deeply at the core, not about them, but about me. And so if you go and let's say, this is a hypothetical, not something that I, I, I do not have any one of your kids in my mind or anything like that, but let's say one of the teachers, and all, every teacher, most teachers, almost all of them are parents themselves. And let's say one child is acting up, causing, causing a distraction, disturbance. And so one of the teachers gives a, a warning and says, you know, you really need to stop. And they continue. And then they say, oh, I'm going to tell you, we're going to have to have a talk with your parents. They continue. And then you talk to the parents. The parents have a meeting and you say, your child has been doing this and that. And if you're First instinct is to say, it's because you're a terrible teacher. It's not my child, it's you. If that is your first instinct, you have pride. Because really, remember, you are a sinner, they are a sinner. We should always be mindful of that. And the way that my children will grow, and I can speak from experience, you know, I have now, my kids are much older, than many of your kids, and yet I know they're sinners, and I am too. And there has never been an instance where my instinct was to think, oh, they, they do no wrong. There's no way they could be the, uh, innocent. Uh, the, the, I mean, there's no way they are innocent. They, I know that there are many different ways that they fall short. And it's not to say that I don't defend them or love them or care for them, but they don't grow unless others are speaking into their life. And I don't grow unless others are speaking into my life. Otherwise, I become blind to myself and my own perceptions of what is true. We have to be at a place, all of us, where we realize that we have room to grow. That's called sanctification. A Christian is always changing. We are never there where we have been perfected now. Once you believe in Jesus Christ, it's not as though suddenly your life is perfect. It's, oh, now I realize I am a sinner and I have a savior. And now I'm being changed and I'm being transformed daily, every day for the rest of my life. But I never think that I've arrived. It's always a process always growing together. 
Without the Holy Spirit breaking through our hearts, there is no way we will change. It requires an incredible work. There's a, um, a wonderful hymn by Isaac Watts, and we all sing it over and over again, When I Survey, and it puts it so beautifully. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. We have to be willing to pour contempt on pride. In other words, you have to hate your pride. You have to despise it. There has to be something in your heart that says, Jesus gave his life. He who had every right to be the most proud of all, but instead, rather than exalting himself, he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, so that I might have life in him forever. And until I get this idea and pour contempt and hate my pride in light of what Christ has done, I will not be wise. I'll not know how to live in this life. You know, humility and wisdom, they go hand in hand together. If you're not humble, you don't grow in wisdom. And humility means I'm open. I'm open to hearing from others, hearing from the Lord. I'm teachable. I hope that the people around you can say, to some extent, this person is a teachable person. You want to hear that of a child, a teenager, an adult. This person is a teachable person. The most teachable or often the most enjoyable people are the most humble people. They're the ones who are open to the wisdom of others. When you are struggling in marriage, you're open to counsel. And fools are so often full of themselves that they cannot see anything that's going around them. They're, they just can't see it. And so fools think that, well, what I wanted, whatever I want to do now is what matters the most. If I want to play video games now, if I want to, hey, I'd, I'd rather talk with my friends than listen to this guy speak about pride. So I'm going to just turn around and talk to everyone. That's called being a fool. You don't want to be a fool, right? That's a deadly place to be because you can lose everything. So fools think their efforts can free them from sin to give them the most pleasure. The wise are humble enough to recognize they need a savior and need to repent and need to turn to Christ as their only hope. Secondly, pride causes strife. Look at chapter 13, verse 10. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Insolence is another word for pride. Nothing but strife comes when you are proud. It, it creates separation, rifts. Chapter 11, verse 2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. When you're so full of yourself, you refuse to see the order of how God has designed the world. And so you refuse to live as though God is God. And Proverbs is telling you, it's warning you, live as a proud person and you will experience conflict 
strife, and misery in this world. When you only see the world through your lens, Judges says that you only do what is right in your own eyes. And everything becomes about me versus them. That's actually the essence of prejudice and bigotry and racism. Racism is because of pride. Bigotry is because of pride. And bigotry comes in many different forms. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 24, it says, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. You know, the word scoffer is mocker. And it's the bully. It's the insolent person. It's someone who's presumptuous, who believes they have no accountability to anyone. They're not accountable to their parents. And this is why Proverbs verses chapter five, six, and seven, the writer is speaking to a son. And this son is, he's, he's actually giving this wise wisdom to a son. And he's trying to say to his son, son, listen to my words. Listen to me. And he's telling them about sexual temptation. He's saying, be careful of this scenario. The fool cannot see that. And they can't listen to what the parents are saying, what a teacher says, what a coach says. They just think, I'm going to do it my way. And so they treat everyone with contempt and disdain. They mock, they make fun of, they belittle, they put down. It's the nature of a person who is a fool, who is full of pride, is that they're always making fun of others. I know sometimes we do this out of jest. And again, it's not to say that there, aren't, there isn't a place to have fun with people, but sometimes you can really push it too far. Have you ever done that with somebody, with a, someone you even care about? You're, you're bantering with them, joking about them. You have a long standing. Maybe siblings do that. I see that sometimes amongst my own children or maybe uh, two friends, they're joking. But then you push it too far and then suddenly they stop talking. Or maybe a tear comes out of the eye. And you realize, why are they crying? We're just fooling around. I didn't mean it. Because there's, there is something to that heart that is just pressing boundaries and the mocking. And so we use anything to differentiate how someone is different from us. Maybe a physical defect. Maybe a hairstyle. Maybe a speech impediment. Maybe someone who is different socioeconomically, racially. Maybe they wear a certain style of clothing. Something that we latch on and say, this is a, I'm going to use this as a point of mockery. We don't use the word mockery or scoffing, but that's what we're doing. No one, though, is willing to say, hey, that's enough. This is wrong. Why do we not say anything? Because we're afraid. We want to be popular. We want to fit in. And that type of thinking always causes division and strife. A proud scoffer by nature is a separator. They're a divider. They're divisive. People who are pri pri uh, proud are always divisive. They always separate people. And you create distance by making others feel lesser than yourself, by making them the other person. This is why in churches, in, at work, when there's division, it's based oftentimes on sort of isolating people. Why are there bullies? Why are there cliques? Why are people not welcomed into our groupings? 
because we want them to be separated. They're not, they don't fit our pattern, our ways, our interests. This is the evil of prejudice, racism, pride. It strips away our image as people who are image bearers of God. We are, have dignity and worth simply because we're in the image of God. And every time we scoff or make fun of an accent or the color of one's skin or what they eat, be mindful of the fact that it really could be out of pride. You see, Proverbs 29.8 shows us that the pride that we experience as one individual, it will make its way out. It doesn't just stay within myself, it progresses. Proverbs 29.8 says, scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. The proud scoffer and mocker, they don't just say a word of hate and then it just stays to themselves. It impacts others. And that hatred and that division starts spreading out like fire. And so scoffers set the city aflame so a whole society can be impacted this way. I, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but oftentimes a person who is filled with bigotry, it's not just that person. If you were to meet the parents, usually it's there too. And if you were to meet their relatives, it's there too. And if you were to meet perhaps their town, it's there too, and their city too. There's a reason why that the Nazi Germanys of the world came to be. It's not because Hitler was intentionally trying to be a person who is, he wouldn't say, I am evil. He would actually say, I am good. I'm trying to do what's right, what is best. Scoffers create whole societies, and it starts even in the church. You know, so it starts in youth groups. It starts in, amongst children, adults. When we are separating ourselves and determining, oh, this person doesn't belong here, this person belongs here. Once we turn our grouping inward rather than outward, we automatically close the door to the Lord. By doing that, we're closing our hearts. That's called pride, and it will destroy everything around. It will destroy the church. When cry, pride creates strife and division, there's no hope for us to change on our own. It's just impossible. Because by nature, pride is, I'm always right. So how does that person ever change if they're always right? You know what? It doesn't change by having a talk with that person. If, try talking to a really proud person. I know in your mind you have a person in mind. Maybe it's the person next, sitting next to you, but maybe by thinking it's the person sitting next to you, you're not realizing it's actually you. But the proud person will not change because you have a really heart-to-heart, -heart, honest talk with them. It won't be because they experience something differently. It's gonna take something far greater than that. You know, it, it requires something is external from you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18 says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. How does a person go from old creation to new creation? How does a person go from 
being completely covered with pride to now being humble. According to Paul, it requires the work of Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So the first reconciliation has to take place, which is you and me to God himself. And that had to be through the cross because that's the ultimate pride breaker is that I have to first see that I have sinned against God. Again, we've said this before, when David sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba, killing Uriah, in Psalm 51, he doesn't even mention Bathsheba or Uriah. He says, you and you only have I sinned against. And I tell you that your pride will never be broken until you see that your first your first place of reconciliation has to be with God himself. And until you realize that, you will never experience full reconciliation with other people. It just won't happen. It's not in the deepest of levels. And so why is it that Judas Iscariot, would you say that he was sorrowful over what he did against Jesus? I think the answer to that is yes, he was sorry. And I I had a, we were, I was having a conversation with somebody about this recently. Just, if, if you say sorry to your, your um, loved ones, you're in a conflict and you say, okay, I'm sorry. It's not as though that in and of itself is this magic formula to make everything well. Although I know for many of us, and I speak as a husband, it's so tempting to believe that to be true, right? To say, I said I'm sorry, okay? I get it. I said I'm sorry. Now let's go back to normal. And then maybe the wife says, you know what? I don't really think you are sorry. I said, but I said it. Well, G Judas was sorry. You know what he did? He killed himself. And that sorry, that sorrow is not a humbling of oneself it didn't actually lead to any type of reconciliation at all. Isn't that true? But Peter, clearly doing comparable things to what Judas did, not only did he say sorry, he actually did something about it. He changed. There was a, a turning. He was recognizing, and Jesus prompted him three times. And Peter came to realize I have sinned and I need a savior. I need Christ. That is the essence of reconciliation. When you first come before the Lord and humble yourself, only then can you begin the process of experiencing grace, freedom, healing, mercy. It's the point of what Paul is saying, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18, is that there has to be this idea that all this is from God, Christ reconciles us to himself, and then notice what comes and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So the, the vertical is reconciled, and from that comes the power now of going to others and reconciling. And until I realize the depth of my sin, which takes humility rather than pride, 
seeing an, another way, another perspective, only then can I go to other people and say, I want to change. I'm so sorry. And I realize that I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. Now that is reconciliation. But you could see why the flow is so important there. And if we miss that, we're never truly sorry. Not really. And we don't get to this place without the cross of Christ. Because here's the problem. If I am so proud, which I am, and if the roots are so deep, which they are, there is no way I will ever, ever yield. But Jesus calls me to that, and he does. And he did the work first. He had to be humbled first. He had to take on the humility of the cross to break the power of pride in me and in you. And the result is reconciliation. Pride leads to scoffing and strife and broken relationships. The cross leads to reconciliation, a union, a bringing together. When two people lay down their pride, wrath is turned away from God to us and from us to one another. We can finally listen to one another when we understand the cross. And this is why I really love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. And I'd like to add one little line to that. It's the only way you can think of yourself less is you have to fill that space with thinking of Christ and his cross more. That has to plug the hole. When you understand that, you lay down your pride and it gives you freedom and joy. Just to close, it's you know the story of the prodigal son. That's a w wonderful story about a man who lays down his pride and he had a lot of it. But it was only in the pig slop that he finally realized, I've sinned against heaven and against you. That's what he said to his, his father. He said, I've sinned first against God and then I sinned against you. And what does the father do? He doesn't say, stay as a slave, you dirty rascal. <laughs> I'm never gonna accept you into my life. If you're gonna come back, you're gonna be a slave in my family. That's not what he said, right? It's come, you're a son. Bring the best robe. Let's feast, let's celebrate. So God is never trying to break down our pride to make us miserable so that we suffer for the rest of our lives so that we're enslaved. Rather, it's, I want you to experience the greatest joy and freedom you possibly can, but you cannot experience that until you lay down your pride. And when you do, that's when joy is unleashed. But you have to trust me in this. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you with much pride in our hearts. I think every one of us here struggles with this sin. There is who, who amongst us can ever say that we have uh, been able to conquer this on our own? We can't. Every moment of every day is a new struggle with pride. Help us to see, O oh Lord, that we are the scoffer. We were the ones who are at the cross, left alone, apart from you, Lord Jesus. We would have been with everyone else saying, crucify him, crucify him. But you rescued us. You called us your own. You welcomed us into your family at the high cost of your son's blood. And so, oh God, 
we want to first acknowledge that we are sinful against you. We need you to do the work of reconciling us to yourself. And only then will we really have this right relationship with others. Help us to understand that and to experience that fully, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.